Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. We're in the fourth week of our series, Luke's Gospel, The Great Reversal. Pastor Mike Stern will lead this morning's teaching, and our scripture reading is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. Good morning, everybody. Any of y'all ever read a book before? Have you ever read a book and then watched the movie adaptation of that book? I love to read, and I like to read all kinds of things, but in particular, I make sure that I always have some sort of narrative, usually a novel, going at any particular time. And inevitably, as I get close to the end of that novel, I start to search and to see if it's ever been made into a movie, and sometimes I'll watch the movie of that book uh, when I get finished with it. But I don't know why I do that, because the movie just never quite meets my expectations. The books are always better, right? Yes. Not only does a movie have way less content, but they're not always faithful to the heart of the story, or they emphasize one theme or aspect of the story and kind of neglect the others, and inevitably the characters are just never quite how I picture them. The Hobbit is a really good example of this. Here they took one of my favorite books, made it into three full-length movies, and still couldn't get it right. Or how about um, Ender's Game? I loved that book as a kid, and I recently reread it, and then I watched the 2013 movie adaptation of it, which is quite possibly the worst movie adaptation of a book I have ever encountered in my entire life. There's worse, Leroy says. Well, let's just stop right there. We don't need to, we'll get into a rant here. We don't need to keep going with it. I think you, you get the picture. So often when we see things come to life in a movie, it doesn't meet the expectations that we have in our minds. And somehow this connects to the Gospel of Luke. We're going through our series right now in Luke called The Great Reversal. And so far, John is still talking about Christmas. But it's not Christmas any longer. It's not the Christmas season. So today we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. Now remember, in our series on Luke, we're seeing how Luke emphasizes that Jesus creates kind of this great reversal with everything where the things that we kind of have in our minds, our expectations aren't met in the same way. He turns things upside down and inside out. We've seen that through Zechariah, where God speaks in silence and stillness. We saw that with Mary, where this unassuming, humble person is graced by God. And then we saw that with how God came to the world that he created with courage and humility. And today we're going to be looking at the two main passages in Luke that address John uh, the Baptist, which are chapter 3 and chapter 7. We're going to start off in chapter 3, so that's where our public reading of scripture is going to be coming from, which is going to be read by Hannah and Jerry. You guys can come on up. Now, if you have a Bible or device, I, I recommend that you keep that open to Luke because we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses here today. And in fact, our passage 
today is pretty long that we're going to start off with. That's why we have the two of you reading it together, because it is a longer passage. And we're also, while they're reading it, you're going to see paintings from like the 14th, 15th, 16th century of John the Baptist coming up throughout the reading. Um, one, because it's a long passage, but two, I think it's, uh, hopefully it will connect with this idea that I, I kind of want to paint two different portraits of John in what we see in Luke today. I had to figure out how to pronounce words for this one, so you're welcome. <laughs> Today's reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree will be, that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more tax than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John ex exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you guys are getting good at that response there. And Hannah, nice job on all those names. Way to go. Now, every one of the four Gospels gives some time dedicated to describing who John the Baptist is. But Luke, in particular, 
gives us some unique things about who he is and what he was doing. So I want to help kind of paint the picture of what Luke is doing here with John. Now, we've already mentioned John in the first sermon in this series when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah, his father, but, and that's all from Luke chapter 1. So let's just kind of go over some of the background for John the Baptist from Luke chapter 1. Gabriel desca- described John in this way, verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. After he was born, due to the remarkable circumstances of his birth, Luke says that everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was on him. Immediately after that, Zechariah said about his son, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. The first chapter of Luke ends with these words about John. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness and until he appeared publicly to Israel. There's certainly something special about John here. He will restore people to God. He's going to turn people's hearts in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The Lord's hand was on him, and he was to prepare the way of the Lord as a prophet. Oh, yeah, and he spent most of his life living in the wilderness. We'll call him unique. When we get to chapter 3 then, we're seeing what we read in chapter 1 coming to life, being fulfilled, uh, coming to pass. Luke kind of sets the stage historically. That's all of the names that Hannah had to, had to read. And this is pretty common for Luke. He's already done it twice in his gospel so far. But it's also a common way in the Old Testament of introducing a prophet. This is the time that the prophet received the word of the Lord when all of these people were in power. So then it says, the word of God came to John, verse two, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the word of of God came to John. There was a message from God that he was to communicate to people. That's like the definition of a prophet right there. And he's preaching to everyone around the Jordan a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Jordans, it's important because the Israelites crossed the Jordan to go into the promised land and to conquer it. So there's some significance here to that setting. Now, not only is John fulfilling what happened in what was said about him in chapter one, but he's also fulfilling what uh, the prophet Isaiah said about him in the Old Testament. He's out there, uh, Isaiah said that he would be the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And that's what John is doing. 
He's out there preparing the way for the Lord. He's preaching. He's telling people about their sins. He's telling them to repent and to be baptized. He's making the way straight. He's making the path the straight and narrow for everyone, getting it all ready for when Jesus comes. Now listen to the words of his preaching again. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Could you imagine if I came up here and I started off by saying, you brood of vipers. John is a fiery prophet. I mean, he's calling people names. He's talking about God's wrath. He's making threats about people being cut down like trees. The cliche phrase in our own time would be that he's a fire and brimstone preacher, which really isn't too well-received nowadays, is it? Honestly, it wasn't back then either, which is why at the end of the chapter, we see that John is thrown into prison for calling Herod out on all of his evil deeds. But if you think John is bad... He Just look at who he's preparing the way for. John answered them all, verse 16. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The truth is, John is pretty much like all of the prophets in the Bible. Like if you were to read the book, the Old Testament, and then you see it coming to life in John, like a movie, John wouldn't disappoint. He's a movie that's faithful to the book. More than anything else, he's calling people to repent, like all of the prophets before him. And his message is consistent with all the Old Testament prophets as well. Essentially, he's saying, you should practice justice and righteousness. Give to those in need. Don't take advantage of people. Don't make false accusations. Don't use your power for evil. These are all themes that flow throughout the Gospel of Luke as well. Now, we don't always like the message of the prophet, but the words are necessary. See, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but you and I don't always align with God. We have this thing called a will. It's a crucially important thing for us being people made in the image of God, but it also gets us into a little bit of trouble. We want to do things 
the way we want to do things. We want things to be the way we want them to be. And that's not always in line with who God is or what he wants, what he wills. This is essentially what John is saying when he's calling the crowd, you brood of vipers. This isn't like a popular insult of his day. It's a biblical insult. You brood, you children of snakes. Can you think of any snakes in the Bible? Go back to Genesis. John is saying you are aligned with the snake, which in Luke's gospel, that's everybody in the crowd. He's saying to them, it's time for you to repent, to turn from that alignment and instead align yourself with God. Don't be a child of the snake. Be a child of God. It's kind of like in the movie Coco, where Miguel thinks that he's the descendant of the really famous musician uh, Ernesto de la Cruz. But then he actually finds out that Ernesto de la Cruz is a bad guy. And he also finds out that he's not the, the descendant of Ernesto de la Cruz, but he's the descendant of Hector, the goofy, lovable, good guy. It's like that, but a little bit deeper. This, this is what Gabriel said that John would do. He would bring back many people to their God and that he would turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Remember that this series on Luke is called The Great Reversal, about how everything in Jesus' kingdom is flipped up and turned around. Well, that great reversal needs to happen in our own hearts. This is the first great reversal that I want to point out in our passage today. Repentance is a reversal toward God. It happens as we hear the words of the prophets, as in like all the words of the Bible, and we respond with repentance, with a turning, not just of our actions, but of our hearts, back to realignment with God. And it's not always easy, not always pleasant, it's not always what we want. Sometimes we don't like the words of the prophet. That's why the prophet has to say them, because they don't always come naturally to us. I don't always like what the Bible has to say. It challenges the way I view the world. It challenges what I think is right and wrong. Mostly it challenges my desires, the things that I want. It's a reversal for me. Now, if we hear the words of the prophet and it doesn't cause that kind of reversal for us, we're just showing some of that old alignment that all of us certain, certain, uh, have certain tendencies toward. And because we have those certain tendencies, repentance isn't just a one-time reversal to Jesus for salvation. It's a daily response that we have. Today, Lord, because I'm a child of God, because I'm found in you, I choose to align myself with you today. When I find myself thinking judgmental or even a hateful thought, I can repent in that moment, 
and turn toward the heart of God. When I find myself being greedy or stingy or just not generous with the things that God has given me, I can repent in that moment and give the way that God gives. When I, when I find myself entering into destructive habits, I can repent in that moment and ask for God's grace and help to get me through it. Okay, I'm looking for responses here. What's the last thing you repented of? I'm just joking, you don't have to respond to that. <laughs> the more often and the quicker we do that, the better we're able to stay in alignment with God. And the less often and the slower that we do that, the harder it becomes to actually have a reversal of heart and turn back to God. Now, thankfully, God's grace abounds in all of this. And if we're followers of Jesus, then we are found in him. We are beloved daughters and sons of God, even when we're being a bit stiff-necked. Now, in this passage, we see John as the fiery prophet, calling people to repentance, not holding back anything that he has to say, not pulling any punches. And as I said earlier, it ends with him being thrown in prison. Now, Luke turns his attention for the next several chapters to Jesus. John was there to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is baptized by John. He's tested in the wilderness. He begins to teach in the synagogues. synagogues. He's rejected by people. And then he starts doing all of these miracles, giving sight to the blind, causing the lame to walk, cleansing lepers, causing the deaf to hear, and raising the dead. John the Baptist reappears again. He's back on the scene in chapter 7. But this time, we have a very different portrait of John. This is the case with most people, by the way. One encounter with them will never give you a full picture of who a person is. John's no longer the fiery preacher. He's the questioner, or maybe even the doubter. In chapter 7, John is presumably still in prison, where we left him in chapter 3. And right on the heels of Jesus healing the servant of the centurion and also raising from the dead the son, the only son of a widow, it says here in chapter 7, verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? The question gets repeated twice for emphasis. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Why is John asking the question? He's asking the question because his disciples were telling him about all the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. A key word in John's question is expect. I've got an expectation of the Messiah, and based on what my disciples are telling me, I don't think my expectation is being met. 
The word expect is connected in chapter three as well, where it says the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Everyone seemed to have some expectations of the Messiah. Remember this picture of John in chapter three. He's the fiery preacher prophet who's calling people to repentance and warning of the wrath of God. And remember what he said about Jesus, that he'll have a winnowing fork and that he'll burn up all the chaff. He'll bring judgment. John definitely had an expectation of Jesus. He's read the book, and now he's seen it come to life like he's watching a movie. He's seen it all come to pass before him, and he's going, it's not quite how I pictured it. Where's the victory? Where's the judgment? Where's the conquest coming through Jordan? There's another clue to this in John's question. He asks, are you the one to, who is to come? The one who is to come is a very specific phrase. It comes from Psalm 118, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, where it says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This Psalm actually pops up later in Luke's gospel when the crowds are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem but there's an added word in that particular quote. They say, blessed is the one who comes, the king, in the name of the Lord. Just like all the rest of the people, John was looking for a conquering king who would bring judgment. John was asking, are you the king we've been waiting for? Well, yes, Jesus was the king, but he wasn't the king that John was expecting. Instead, what does John hear about? Look in uh, verse 21 of chapter 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many, to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is the second great reversal that we're seeing today. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. He had compassion on people who didn't deserve it, like the centurion whose servant he healed, or even like the people who were coming to John in chapter 3, the tax collectors and the soldiers. I think John expected something that was a little bit more like fire and brimstone. Jesus' last words to John through his messengers are, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
In other words, blessed are those who will trust in me, that won't turn away because of me. It's almost like Jesus is saying, will you accept me for who I am? Or will your expectations of what you think I should be cause you to stumble, cause you to turn away? That's the question before all of us, really. Will we accept Jesus for who he is? You see, you and I have expectations of Jesus. Even though we're sitting here in a different time, looking back at when Jesus came, rather than like John seeing it all unfold in front of him, we still form our own expectations of Jesus. They, those things are based on our own context, our families, our upbringing, our politics, our church backgrounds, our economic status, our personalities, our ethnicity, our circle of friends, even the current cultural milieu. Many of the ideas that we have of Jesus that are come from those things are like bad movie adaptations of a book. They aren't faithful to the heart of the story. The characters are all wrong, and so often it's emphasizing one aspect to the neglect of others. Maybe we think Jesus has a certain personality, which just happens to resonate with my personality. Maybe we'll think he'll take up a certain cause, my cause. Or he has a particular side, my side. Or that he leans a certain way politically, the way I lean. These are the expectations that we have of Jesus. Will Jesus meet our expectations or will we accept him for who he is? Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Some of us will likely want what John wanted, a fire and brimstone preacher who's going to bring some judgment. And maybe we're a little bit light on the compassion and mercy side of things. Some of us maybe want what is emphasized in chapter 7, the compassion and the mercy, and maybe we think there's no aspect of judgment in Jesus at all. The interesting thing here is that both Jesus' deeds in chapter 7 and John's words in chapter 3 are both called good news. They're both called the gospel. Jesus said in chapter 7, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news, the gospel, is proclaimed to the poor. And then in chapter 3, right after John declares that Jesus will burn up all the chaff, it says, and with many other words, 
John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news, the gospel, to them. That Jesus brings judgment is good news. We need God's justice. That Jesus comes with compassion and mercy is good news. We know we need God's mercy, right? Now, I want to point out that just because Jesus didn't meet John's expectations doesn't mean that John was wrong. Luke doesn't uh, indicate that at all in the language that he's using. John was a true prophet of God, but he had an incomplete picture of the Messiah, of Jesus. And that's how it is for all of us. We have an incomplete picture. There's more to Jesus than what we expect. But unlike some bad movie adaptation of a book, he's something, he's someone better than any book, far better. Now he threw people off, he threw them for a loop because he was different than what they expected. And maybe he's different than what we expect individually at times as well. Now, none of us has a corner on, on Jesus. None of us have it all figured out. And in fact, we can never be completely objective about it. So that means in our contentious, combative, polarized world, we need to constantly be asking questions like, is what I think about Jesus formed more by my cultural context than by the Bible? Do I emphasize certain aspects of God that I see in the Bible and completely neglect others? Am I expecting Jesus to think what I think or am I aligning myself with who he is? Remember, the great reversal needs to happen in our own hearts. We're constantly being pulled here or there, being compelled to align with this thing or that thing, with this group, with that ideology, with these politics. But our allegiance, our alignment, is with Jesus. And hopefully, we'll always be broadening our understanding of who Jesus is, getting a fuller picture of all of his complexity. And the more we understand about him from the book, the more we understand the book, and the more we experience him in real life, the more we see how great he is. He's the opposite of the bad movie adaptation. He brings to life all that we read in the book. Let me pray. Jesus, you are far greater. You're far more wonderful than any of us truly understand. But we know you are great. That's why we're here to worship you. That's why we come to this place. We trust that you are good. In your compassion, in your mercy, and even in your judgment, you are good. We know that you are good. Thank you that we can trust in you. 
We love you, God, and we just pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that we would have a fuller understanding of who you are. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We'll see you next week.